Hey, everybody. I don't know how to start it off. What are your thoughts about the intro? All right. Well, I wrote down a list of points. Boundaries for our podcast. We curse a lot. Fucking obviously. We tell stories and jokes. We are allowing ourselves a space to talk about important and challenging subjects. <laughs> if any of these things are not okay with you, please don't listen to this podcast. But I, I think we should keep talking about this for for a minute and make that the intro. Just kind of take some of each of our statements and and make that the intro. And also I'll use the fart noises. Welcome to How I Met My Brother. Hello. 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 Hello, everybody. Maybe, maybe tonight, maybe tonight's episode, I'll, I'll be a little bit quieter. Um, cause when, when I told my wife that, that we were going to record, she was like, oh, okay, I'll leave. <laughs> cause apparently usually during our recordings, uh, I get a little animated. I don't want my wife to feel as though she's not allowed in the house while we're recording. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I need to be careful of is my crazy laughter that gets really loud and spikes. So I think the compressor software that I've been using on the recent episodes is getting that a little more under control. This is really good radio. This is how the sausage gets sausage listeners this is how the sausage this is the sausages butcher butcher this is where the sausage goes to buy its sausage is that the same <laughs> have i have i got that right no idea this is know. where the sausage goes to buy sausage this is where the sausage goes to buy sausage i think that's right i think that's the saying i i think i've i think i've got that dead on I don't know if it would make sense to our listeners, but, but listeners, uh, my brother and I, we were going to do a podcast the last time we met, but we didn't. And instead he gave me a bunch of breakup advice. And, um, cause I just went through a, uh, not, not great breakup. Are there good breakups? I don't know. But anyway, he's, he's currently working on a Rubik's cube. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know if he remembers, but he had this wonderful analogy um, for did, when yeah, no, the, for the, when, yeah. when you're out in the world and you're putting yourself out and you're being vulnerable and you're trying to figure out love and you fail. And and could you please tell us what your wonderful Rubik's Cube analogy is? Dr. Leo Cardoza. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I'm going to call it the um, the unified cube theory. <laughs> and, you know. It doesn't just have to be about relationships. This can go for anything in life that, you know, that, that you, that you improve with. Cause the thing about the Rubik's cube is, you know, like, like life or, uh, like us early on in our lives and in relationships and whatnot, we start off all jumbled up real, real mixed and jumbled up. Uh, and then like, maybe we get to the point where you can solve like one face of a Rubik's cube, right? You know, so you have one side of it and that's the side that you're going to show to people. And like, everybody knows that most of us only have that one side, you know, like that's uh, the only part that most people see, you know, you don't have to uh, talk about all this other shit in the back. That's like still all, still all mixed up. It's, no, the fire, this is a good one. That's the one that I show to people. This is the one that I've been working on. That's the one that I can do. And I feel like that's like that. That's most people's with like anything. It doesn't just have to be relationships. But like that's no, most right. people's level of work uh, is, <laughs> <laughs> it's like getting just getting one the, side so of I can, Rubik's I can, cube. I can solve one side of a Rubik's cube. That's my skill level. Um, and like if you you know work on it a little bit more, like maybe you can get to like what I got here, where you got two levels of the you know the side of the Rubik's cube. So you got you know your your uh, whatever sixty six percent solved there. Like that's that's pretty good. <laughs> Um, and that, you know, I mean, even like the, the yellow side, like almost all this, it's, that's, that's seven out of nine is correct on that side. Like, that's pretty good. Um, 
And, you know, like that's that's a good level for, you know, because we shouldn't aspire to be the perfect Rubik's Cube. And this is the other part that I left out that I didn't think of until after our last conversation, because um, the perfect Rubik's Cube, the completed Rubik's Cube is boring. That's what I've noticed from the fact that I re- recently became a Rubik's Cube guy. And <laughs> if you have a, a completed Rubik's Cube just sitting there on your desk, um, that's boring. Like Immediately what you want to do when you see a completed Rubik's Cube is pick it up and mess it up. <laughs> So, and that's, that's the other part is that like, even if you are, even if, if you get to the point where you can consistently, uh, complete the Rubik's cube, um, going through the, going through the process of, of practicing, continuing to practice, um, even at something that you are already able to, you know, technically accomplish, um, is kind of, is part of where the, uh, the, the sense of, of joy and uh, and fulfillment from continuing to do it comes in. Um, so you get it complete like that. Um, then there's another one coming down the pipeline. And then, well, or you just, you can't, like, you can only stare at this completed Rubik's cube <laughs> for so long before you're like, nope, you know what? I need to, I need a new challenge. I gotta, I gotta fuck it up again. I gotta, I gotta spin it around and like try to do it without looking or put it in my pocket or, <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Try to try to solve it the opposite opposite direction or or whatever, or start timing myself. Um, because yeah, it uh it 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 continues to be a challenge. I think that's what is um what what continues to fascinate people about this as a toy uh is that it does continue to, you know, even, even once you've have learned the, the steps of it, um, there's, it's still, it's still entertaining. So I'm going to do some fact check. Okay. Um, I also wanted to, uh, I, I, I don't think I told you the full story about this, um, that, uh, cause I, I texted you that, that breakup song, yeah, um, I listened to it. Which the reason that I it was just a really funny moment from my week the last week. Um hmm. that the the reason that so that song is Me Boy by Julieta Venegas. Um and it is one that I like um I've heard that album years ago and um and it's kind of always gone like through my rotation from time to time. Um <clears throat> and that uh that that song is one that like on multiple times when I've been going through uh, breakups has been, you know, kind of on, on heavy repeat. And um, I was in the, my, the warehouse at work the other day. And one of the, one of our, uh, our warehouse guys who they ride around on these like um, forklifts and, you know, pick, pick orders in the, in the warehouse. And he comes around the corner and, uh, and he's got that, that song playing. They usually, they'll have like, you know, a little Bluetooth speaker on their, uh, on their machine and they're playing music and, uh, and he's got that song playing and it just, just as it comes up to the chorus. And I love that line so much. Um, so the, uh, the, the chorus line to the song, um, no, no, no voy a llorar y decir que no, que no merezco esto. Uh, I'm not going to cry and say that I don't deserve this. Porque es probable que lo merezco. Oh, because probably I do deserve it, but pero, I don't want pero, it. Pero no lo quiero, por eso me voy. And that's why I'm leaving. Ooh. That's such a great line, right? I love that. I, I just, I love that line Ooh. so much. That is tantalizing <laughs> and tasty. Yeah. So that's I just, beautiful. I, yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I, I love that line. Um, but also this guy like comes around the corner and, you know, sees me and I'm like in my office clothes. Um, 
and I start belting out, like singing along to the song, the song. And, uh, he was not expecting to, to find one of the office guys hanging out in the warehouse and, uh, just suddenly sing along with what is a, a relatively obscure. Um, I mean, not that obscure. She's like, uh, she's fairly, um, popular, but like not a lot of people in the, you know, I don't hear her played a whole lot in the U S at all. Uh, anyway, so that was a fun moment of my week. Yeah. Okay, what I have a question. So, uh, listeners, there's a bunch of things actually that I needed to fact check that I didn't get to. So, dark energy, dark matter, dark flow, Afrofuturism, African futurism. That's going to come at the next one, but I did get to some other ones. But I have a question. Leal, apocryphal. What do you think it means? Um, like ancient, I mean, yeah, sort of ancient or uh, not like uh, apocryphal texts are generally ones that, uh, I, or at least I think of the definition as being um, like old and not considered that reliable, like not necessarily verified um, or not. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of not, doubtful authenticity, although yeah. widely circulated as being true, is apocryphal. Sure, yeah. That's not, that's that's fits the 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 basic outline of kind of what I mean when I say that. And then apocrypha is like urban legends. Right. I mean, uh, apocrypha is basically the uh, a a body of apocryphal information. Because right here it's talking a lot about the Bible. Yeah, that's one where the the um you'll hear a lot of you'll you'll hear you'll hear about apocryphal Bible stories. Um and again when I think of what it means for a Bible story to be apocryphal, um I assume that it means that it's not considered as real or reliable, um, you know, of a, of a source. Yep. Unknown authorship, doubtful origin. Yep. Okay. And then, uh, do we want to look up Flappuccino and talk about Flappuccino or, uh, I don't. Okay. So here's something that, um, I, that, so we already touched on the fact that when I think of, of teabagging and I'm so glad that we're talking about teabagging again on a, is this the fourth episode where, where we have touched on this subject or the third <laughs> I've, I've lost track, but oh, um, episode seven is great. The whole first 15 minutes, all we do is talk about teabagging. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um. So like I said, I, I have never thought of teabagging as a um, as a sexual act and more of a uh, like a prank or, you know, a humiliation uh, type of act. So like the idea of uh, a, a man teabagging a woman in a way that's at all sexual doesn't make sense to me at all. Whereas what you're describing when you say Flappuccino, um, that's that's just um oral sex is because i also interesting I, I, that is that is this is a really good point leo i, I mean yeah flappuccino really yeah flappuccino is just putting the vulva on a face which that's just a polite thing to do i think i think more people should do that um whereas yeah the tea bag when you again, ride your oh my god <laughs> What what have you found? Oh, well, when you ride your girl bareback, oh my god! Okay, I'm looking in the. Are you look, okay. are you on are, are you on Urban Dictionary right now? I am. Flappuccino is a Starbucks induced queef. That yeah, like I'm. I'm kind of more on board with uh, that, yeah, with that as the as the definition for that because yeah, Flappuccino as the 
as the definition for the 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 vulva uh counterpart to teabagging uh, it just doesn't um yeah, it doesn't. Oh, yeah, and it says she gave me a flappuccino last night, so she just flaps her pussy on your face. <laughs> is that what it is? She just flaps those labia all over your face. I That's mean, all it says. They're not going into detail. It just says she gave me a flappuccino last night. So I guess, yeah, you put the the labia instead of the balls. You put the labia on the face. Well, so here's here's what's important about. I'll have this, to try though. that with my next lover. I'll put that on my Tinder profile. Um, you must be open to flappuccinos. Here's what's important about this this very important work that we're doing right now, um, and that is that. Uh, and this is this is how you can can be the change that you want to see in the world. <laughs> is that. <laughs> Tell us, Leal, how should we be the change? <laughs> you can oh, see- Gandhi, you're starting to sound like Gandhi. Teabagging you- Gandhi over here. <laughs> you can. You're allowed to submit your own definitions to to uh, Urban Dictionary. Like you can, you can just decide what Flappuccino means, and you can submit your own definition. You can help remake the, the English language in you know whatever way you say you think is is best. Yep, Nate teabagged Julie yesterday while she was sleeping. Tonight she's going to get revenge and Flappuccino him. Hmm. <laughs> I yeah, I just don't. Again, like. I see the I see the function of the the tea bag as a uh, as a humiliation thing when it's done by you know when like uh, when when guys do it to each other as a sleep at a sleepover or something like that makes sense to me not that it's good but I I, I understand the the premise whereas the premise of putting your balls on your female partner's head as as a prank i don't i don't understand that prank (laughs) i don't get the punchline i don't think i could explain the punchline of the other scenario that i can't i I don't think i can tell you why it's funny the idea of of putting your balls on another man's head um (laughs) So maybe it's just cultural. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's, just it's cultural. Something I, something I understand yeah, because I am. Yeah, we did not do flappuccinos at our at our slumber parties when we were young. Not a thing. Nor was mm. it ever even talked about. It's quite intimate. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're much less uh, intimate. Um, <laughs> about about the the balls. <laughs> Like women don't, people who have vulvas do not show each other their vulvas as a prank. That is a good point, Leal. Right? Like two people who have vulvas are not like trying to trick one another into looking at their vulvas. My roommate has done it to me a couple of times where you like, walk downstairs and then she's just stand just standing there and then, and then you're forced to look at her pussy uh-huh but it's not a vulva for sure right you're just looking at, at patch <laughs> just hair yeah 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 i mean that that i think is part of just the you know the the dynamics of the you know the, did you the... just say patch yeah that's a new one patch that's <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that's just part of the physical dynamics of the two, uh, of, of the different types of parts. Cause the Audi parts are easier to, you know, wave around and everybody yeah. who has one waves it around. Um, <laughs> it's not a thing you can not do. One of um, my, so last night I put my rainbow cock on, on at the comedy open mic again. Um, and the thing I do is I, it's, I'm like, nobody's listening to me. Well, I, I'll take care of that. And then I put the cock on in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, now I have the authority 
and you'll all listen to me and I can do whatever I want and I don't have to take accountability for anything. But did you know what my favorite thing is about my cock? Is that part of, are you asking me or is that part of the, 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 the bit? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing about my cock. It's not what you think it is. Okay. It's not that it's actually just, I love it when I take a piss and at the very end of the piss, you got those few little droplets left on the tip of your dick and you just get to shake those droplets off. But it's just like, it's so satisfying. And then there's no more pee stains in your undies. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like that doesn't really work for girls. You know, you can't just do that. I don't say that part at the end of my bit. But... <laughs> the end of my bits. But I imagine that would be a wonderful thing about, I would love to be able to stand and pee. I have, I got one of those shiwis. Have you ever heard of these things? Yeah, I think, I think my wife has one. And like, I tried it, you know, and I just peed all over my legs. You know, it just didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And it doesn't work for everybody. And you have to get it just exactly right. Yeah, I've heard, and I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different kinds to like a bunch of different brands. Yeah, it's. It, I have a little bit of penis envy around the standing up and peeing. I'm. You, we could do it as females. You'd have to have like a crotch open, and then you could just stand and squat and let the pee come down through the middle. Yeah, yeah. We just haven't. I mean, obviously, it's you know slightly more convenient to have a weird tube. Um, <laughs> That's a a, a, a a comedian that I used to be friends with uh, had he described it as having a having a weird tube attached to the front of your body that changes changes size and density based on my mood, which that that's the description of a penis. Yep. Oh, weird. That's great. No, that's, that's an <laughs> accurate, no over it. accurate de- de- description <laughs> of what it is and what it does. Um, okay. You got, I got to go back. This one is the one that's a Starbucks induced queef for Flappuccino. Yeah. My, my, listen to this. I, my, I have to I wait, have... Listen, listen, my girlfriend had a cappuccino. And then she had a flappuccino burst my eardrum when I went down on her. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk back my approval of this definition. Um, <laughs> Just imagine that the a frothy bi- queef. <laughs> right, but the biomechanics of a cup of coffee causing that. This is where your science brain really kicks in, Leo. Yeah, I don't, um, I, I don't see how a that... Starbucks induced sleep. Yeah, um, maybe yeah, I... it was the guy behind the counter, or maybe you you do yoga right after you do that downward dog, right after you drink your cappuccino, and then the queef comes out. That happens a lot in Downward Dog for the ladies I've heard. I mean, I fart in Downward Downward Dog not un, not uncommonly. Um, I I'm mean, not that, much that, of a queefer myself. Well, and that's the th- I like. I feel like that is a. Uh, I don't know. I have, I have no like legitimate medical basis for this. I just tend to assume that anything that is um, potentially embarrassing and. Uh, and uh yonic is uh yonic. Is, is is yonic just for like oh, visual is that just like does that just mean visually or does that mean like pussy related i don't know <laughs> anyway any anything that is that is potentially embarrassed and uh and related to the uh the the vulva area uh is overblown and like there's a lot of just kind of bullshit mythos around it that uh effectively just serves to make uh people who uh who own those body parts uh feel uh, ashamed and uncomfortable about them 
And maybe yeah. that's part of why I don't like the idea of Flappuccino. Because, I mean, we already talked about this. Like, there's there's way too much uh, overarching culture that already does, works way too hard and is way too good at uh, making people who, who own vulvas p- feel bad about them. Um, meanwhile, m- people who own penises are, uh, you know, as long as they're not somebody with, you know, dysphoria. Uh, but generally speaking, you... you you have uh, a free, free license from society to feel good about, uh, about your penis. Um, unless it's, uh, unless it's small and then you have to feel bad about it. Um, there's a, there's a comic who I know is, who's very, uh, he's like living proof that, um, that having a, having a small dick doesn't have to make you an asshole. Um, I love, I love showing people his clips cause he's like very open about this. He doesn't feel insecure about it. Like he has no, he talks about it on stage constantly. Um, and like, I just, you should like, people should be able to feel that way if they, if, if that's what they're working right? with, because it's not your general, like, yeah, everybody your should fault. have, yeah, everybody should have the opportunity to love their own genitals, no matter what their shape is or what they look like or how big or small, like you I should, saw, yeah. I saw hump fest last year for the first time. What is that? Uh, that so that's Dan Savage does it. I believe oh, yeah. it's a yearly thing. And it's, um, I'd never done it before, but it's where you watch essentially like homemade porn in a theater. It's nothing like uh Pornhub or anything. It's what, you know, well done and interesting and, and you're in a theater with people you don't know. And he's very explicit. He comes out and he's like, if this arouses you, go home. You know, this is not for public masturbation. And and there was one, There was, I thought it was amazing, Leal, because I felt it was educational. I thought it was healthy to like be watching this kind of stuff with the community and have like really good boundaries. And then I got to see different body parts and different sizes and shapes. There was someone like masturbating with a, a very small penis. And it was cool for me to see those things. Uh, Cause I, you know, we've talked about this in a lot of our episodes, but sexuality is so put under the rug as if it doesn't even exist. And we, and as we both know, like we don't even understand fully our biology like, why not learn about it yeah. and learn about and and learn about all the different ways that expresses itself on the spectrum and freaking not have a not have a norm around that either. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, obviously, we're already on the on the, the same page on on this subject, because, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the. Uh, it's it's bad it's unhealthy for people not to understand their own sexuality their own physiology um so many things and um yeah i mean there's so much shame and so much pain and so i mean and without like before you even get into all of this like just the impact on the individual before you, you get into the intense psychological damage that it does to us as a society and all of the evil shit that has been done by people, uh, because, uh, because of, you know, one insecurity or another. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, it, it should be okay to, um, you know, think about sex and be familiar with sex and what, what it looks like and what, body parts look like i can't believe we got onto such a good point off of teabagging i'm really <laughs> we're such good, we're so we're so good at podcasting so i'm gonna we, flip it i'm gonna go another direction because we're still on fact check uh and then and i have just one other thing here for fact check which i don't know where we're gonna go with this but uh and then after that we're talking about food systems you keep threatening you that we're going to talk about food systems. I don't. I think this is at this point, it's going to turn into this bit where every episode we say we we're going never to talk, talk about, about food. <laughs> <laughs> we have for the past five episodes, literally. <laughs> Jesus God, it's like, this, 
there's this pod, this podcast i listen to about engineering disasters and ever and at the end of every every episode they joke about what the next episode is going to be and it's going to be like uh a very because they they talk about like really obscure uh engineering disasters and stuff um mm-hmm. And every time they're like, we're going to talk about something, you know, like something that's well known and that a lot of people have covered, like the uh, the Boston molasses disaster or the uh, the uh, Tacoma Narrows Bridge or something. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. So this is Oshun. And this is written by Valerie Mesa, who is a person of color. Uh, so this is not, uh, I did look up like Wikipedia and a bunch of white people have written about Oshun. Uh, Oshun is one of the most beloved Yoruba deities. She, she comes from Yoruba. Um, she is the benevolent and venerated goddess. This goddess is very much alive. She is beautiful. She has undying love. Magical rhythm, her magical rhythm flows through sacred waters. Her feminine essence resides in the rivers of the world and in the hearts of those who call upon her energy today and every day. Developed among the people of Nigeria and Benin, the Yoruba faith consists of ritual practices that include singing, dancing, spiritual possession, and healing ceremonies. It is said that the day we are born, each of us are accompanied by an Orisha who serves as a lifelong protector. In the United States, Latin America, and the Caribbean, seven of the major Orishas are referred to as the seven African powers. Jemaija is one of those as well, um, as well as Oshun. Ah. Uh, so Oshun is a guardian. Oshun is, oh no, no, that's different. Orishas are guardians and Oshun is a deity. And it seems as though Oshun kind of comes from a primordial creation deity, but she is feminine. She is the goddess of love, beauty, fertility, and she is the youngest Orisha and the one of the most adored in the Yoruba religion. According to the sacred stories left by our ancestors, she was brought into existence by Olodumare, the supreme creator, who is neither male nor female. Once they realized something crucial was missing after creating the earth, sweetness and love. As one, of the, as one of the ancient Yoruba myths suggests, the human race would not exist if Oshun... It, it's, it is said that Oshun's sweet and fertile waters brought life to humanity. So she is a goddess of the water. Oh, and she exudes sensuality as well. Fresh flowing river water. Her sparkling charisma can light up a room and her lush womanly figure suggests fertility and eroticism. One of her favorite things to eat is honey and her contagious laugh can either put you under a spell or send shivers down your spine. And uh, I'll stop that, but that's beautiful. Oh goodness, there's so much cool shit. Okay, I gotta say this too. She is also referred to as the queen of witches. She's a teacher of both magic and mysticism. She loves casting good spells. She is a grantor of wishes of your heart's desires. And when she is respected and properly invoked, she can hold the key to love and prosperity. Love her, be loyal to her, and mindful in your wishes. She is the goddess of love, after all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, was that a callback to something, or I? That was a callback to yes. That was a fact check. Um, I wasn't sure. This was when we had the giant conversation about tap dancing and the Afro scene and African futurism and Afrofuturism and all of that. And uh-huh. I brought up Oshun 
and I knew Oshun was a deity, but I wasn't sure from where. Oh, okay. I remember that conversation. I didn't remember the the specific mention of uh, of Oshun. So I want to let everybody know that's a little bit about Oshun. Um. Yeah, because that was not. I don't think is as one of the um, characters that plays into the uh, stories from the um, the author that I um, that I was talking about when we were talking about um, the uh, African futurism and stuff. Because uh, she There's does. A, I have an idea. At the end, I could sing a song in Portuguese that okay. I learned. That I learned when I was in Latin America to Oshun. Um, okay, here we go. This is happening. Okay, so I want to start by saying I watched a documentary the other day, Leal Cardoza. Okay. The one and only, my brother that I just met, um, called Kiss the Ground. Have you seen that one? Uh-uh. Okay, so it's on Amazon. Okay. Prime. I recommend it. People, if you haven't seen it, um, Kiss the Ground. Woody Harrelson stars in it. He's kind of the big speaker. Granted, it is very white. Uh, I wish it were more diverse. Because um, a lot of the things that are spoken about in this movie, I imagine many other cultures have known for a really long time. But uh, it it talks about how from the Industrial Revolution, which started in 1750, we have just been essentially destroying all of our topsoil. And so two thirds of our soil on the planet is now turning to desert. So there's essentially like no nutrients left in our soil. Then they proceeded to tell us that from some of the chemists from Auschwitz, from, from Nazi Germany, they were creating toxins to kill the Jews. And then they sold those toxins to us, which we turned into pesticides and fertilizers. So that's an actually documented fact, mm -hmm. which is disturbing. So some of the fertilizers and pesticides that we're putting on our food in the United States comes from that evil. Um, and then they proceeded to show some of the farmers and ranchers that are practicing regenerative farming. And there's four components of regenerative farming. I don't have them all memorized. I know one of them is like crop cover, but, and especially for ranching, regenerative ranching and farming and like mixing them together. So, so you're the shit from your animals is going back into the soil and According to the science of regenerative farming, if we were to start practicing regenerative farming and ranching all over the world, that would draw the carbon dioxide back down and really be one of the most incredible ways that we could turn the global warming situation around. Yeah, I don't know that much about... Um about the subject i do i i did know about um like world war ii era um science that created some of i mean the flip side and i don't know enough of the details about who created what i know that there are um i mean there's a lot of companies that are uh, that are still around uh and that that were that were involved in uh terrible shit during uh during world war ii um yeah. But yeah, it's true. I mean, the, the, the flip side of the origin of those, uh, like, uh, especially fertilizers, like the, um, the invention of nitrogen fertilizer, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I, it's been a while since I've read anything on this, but like, uh, it was an incredible revolution in terms of the ability to just grow enough food to, to feed people. Um, and they were, prior to that technology being developed um the whatever greatest minds um had a a much lower cap on the theoretical upper limit of um the number of people that the earth could support could grow enough food to to um to feed um so like that technology of nitrogen fertilizer was 
like a complete game changer. But I also, yeah, I, I, I can't remember nearly enough um, about the entire uh, subject and who was involved to, uh, to even attempt to, um, to speak on it. Um, and I, you know, I am occasionally optimistic um, when it comes to whether or not we're going to destroy this planet or make this planet so that we can't live on it. Um, because I think about, well, eventually it's not so much. Like, I, I don't think maybe this is me being too optimistic. I don't think that, um, uh, human, uh, the, the existence of humanity will ever make conditions on the planet so bad that literally no humans at all can survive. Like, I think eventually there will come a point. Um, and, uh, and I don't think it's going to be very soon, unfortunately, but eventually there will come a point where enough things have been destroyed and enough people have been killed over limited resources that again, the planet will come into balance. Um, and you know, maybe some other species will have involved, evolved a level of intelligence by then. So we'll, we'll have somebody to fight with and we won't have, have as much time to dedicate to just shitting all over our dinner plates. (laughs) Tell me about your relationship to food. Uh, my relationship to, uh, growing food or cooking food. Both. Well, let's start, let's start with, let's stick with growing, growing. Um, so, I mean, you've seen our father's garden. Um, that is, um, growing food and actually to get, to get back into the, the general generational level with this, um, you know, our, our father grew up in the, in the fifties and sixties, he was born in 1951, um, and, uh, that point, uh, in the United States, the idea of, uh, fresh food was very much out, out of the window. Um, in, in part, I think it had to do with shit. I can't remember if victory gardens were a thing in world war two and world war one, or just one or the other. Um, but one of the things that's always like in the back of my head is that, um, that it was world war. I think it was in world war two. And I always think of it, think of that hand in hand with, um, the the rejection of like fresh food uh as kind of this like celebration of the of the war being over this very kind of uh boomer era thing um because you had like that the you know the 50s and 60s is the era of jello salads and canned everything and like no fresh vegetables and like my dad and other people uh have uh, his age had told me stories about how you know when they grew up they hated vegetables because everything was boiled and like if they did um, one one friend of my parents um talks about you know she moved out to idaho she's from the midwest and finally discovered fresh food for the first time and then like would go home to visit her family and like go grocery shopping and bring home fresh vegetables and then her mom just throws whatever the vegetable is in a pot of boiling water for 25 minutes uh, and that's how she cooks vegetables. Uh, that's, it's just well, like, no wonder kids hate vegetables. Right. No, it's an entire, salad. yeah, it's an entire generational thing. Wow, um, I never and so as a, as a reaction to that, um, our dad and, and a lot of, I think a lot of other people, uh, his age kind of, uh, got into gardening and I definitely, you know, got it from him. Like I've, uh, always been into plants and, um, you know, I, I like, uh, landscape, like, you know, uh, tree trimming and, and stuff like that. In addition to gardening, um, I've always kept house you plants. Up, did you grow up when you were a kid doing gardening then all of you? Uh, yeah. I mean, did was, you like weed with Alex? A little bit. It was, it was definitely mostly dad's <laughs> gig. I think what I remember about it, kind of my, my, I, what I remember about my, my perception of it and my thoughts about it was that like, it's a thing that you do, um, when you have your own, when you have your own space. So like, I wasn't that much into helping dad with the gardening, um, while I was in, while I was in school and still living at their house. Um, but then when I moved out, um, even just like when I moved into a house with friends in college, uh, I like planted plants and I was very, you know, I, I would try to take care of, um, 
take care of stuff and like planted flowers and, and crap like that. It was a fraternity house. It all died. But, um, <laughs> but then, you know, when I like, uh, moved out and when I, uh, went to New York, like I had, had house plants and I also like, I would do, you know, grow, uh, lettuce and stuff in like wood boxes out on my balcony and, uh, all kinds of crap like that. And then, uh, obviously when I moved back to Boise, when I bought my house, like it's, um, you know, gardening's always been a, a, a huge thing. One of the things that's funny for me is that um, I'm really bad at planning what I'm going to do with the food that I grow in my garden. <laughs> um, like I plant very much on um, just on on vibes and emotions. That's part of the reason I plant so many tomatoes. It's not because I like eating tomatoes. Like I like tomato sauce because I like pizza. That's that's actually what's going on here. I like pizza, um, <laughs> but I also like looking at cool looking tomatoes. <laughs> so it's not because yeah it's not like and i also i mean those are like the only fucking tomatoes you can eat like you can't eat tomatoes that come from the store they're all the fucking worst um or god forbid like a a tomato that you get on a sandwich uh or a hamburger or something just awful um so yeah i mean i didn't i didn't get into organic food until college we did not i did not grow up with organic food or gardening I grew up and we did go to the woods eventually and I camped and stuff, but not, didn't have that relationship to food until when I joined the caravan in Latin America. Then we started to, you know, we had, we were, had a lot of relationships with farmers and I went to a lot of eco villages and I saw a lot of cool ways that, you know, these little eco villages would take the cow shit and, put it inside this black plastic and fermented and then the methane would power the kitchen and that kind of stuff was really neat permaculture but i didn't get really have personal experience until i went and lived off grid and then we had a huge garden i mean it was an acre 60 medicinal plants and then 25 varieties of tomatoes and 20 varieties of peppers and 25 varieties of mustards and and i really the tomatoes thing and the peppers they're beautiful those plants are so beautiful eggplants when you get a chance to really have time to plant and and not have it be this commodity it's so cool to see where your vegetables come from asparagus if you've never seen like where asparagus comes from it's brussels sprouts on the plant that is like an alien species it's just totally wild and and yeah though the tomatoes the heirloom tomatoes are magic and peppers all the different kinds of peppers and then in the fall we would do just massive canning and massive freezing and massive fermenting and we would have we had a root cellar so we'd do like 50 50 quarts of ferments and they'd be stored in our root cellar and that's what we'd live on all winter long which is kind of like how you're supposed to do it you're not supposed to pay 20 dollars for a quart of expensive liberal kraut It's supposed to be, I think, you know, it's something that you, you use throughout the winter. That's so you can, cause you can eat the fresh stuff in the summer. And I, we also, I also did a lot of fermenting of fruits and I made these fruit juices with fermented fruit and salt that were like an electrolyte. And they just pumped my body full of so much energy and electrolyte and life and life force. And, and then we would work in harmony in conjunction with all the other local people. So we'd have local people doing slaughtering our pigs and we'd bring our compost over to them to feed the pigs. And you could kind of see how all of those things work together. It was life-changing for me to um, to live on that garden for those years and and slow down and learn about food. 
I never had. You know, I feel like I kind of took food for granted. I wonder if we if we do take food for granted a little bit. It feels like such an important, 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 important part of our lives here. But but it's almost like we don't because of capitalism, we don't have enough time to really sit down and enjoy and we don't have enough time to grow food together in our communities. And 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 I think that takes us taken us away from the cycles of the natural cycles of like life and death. Yeah. You know, I was just, you, you made me think about, um, cause sometimes I think about, uh, like what we're trying to do, uh, with this podcast. Like what if, you know, if, if we can, accomplish something, you know, uh, beyond just, um, just, just talking to each other. Um, because there are people who are, are doing small things. One of the biggest, so another thing that that's huge when you, when we talk about, um, food systems and access to quality food and, um, and, and fresh food and stuff, um, it, it wraps up, you know, this is where, uh, again, um, intersectionality was the word that I was looking for, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, intersectionality, you realize how much you can't. And it's, I think it's, you have to compartmentalize a little bit because when you realize that, or when you start thinking that you can't fix anything without fixing everything, um, it, it gets way too easy to, to, to quit. Um, but, you know, one of the, the, one of the things that is so glaring, especially in the United States when it comes to, um, poverty and, uh, and, you know, lack of access to, to quality food and food deserts and, and, and stuff like that. It's like, um, there that's, it's one of, one of the key, uh, like areas of inequality, um, for, for so many groups. And I, I, I lived in, um, neighborhoods in Brooklyn that are, and not even, not even among the like most extreme versions of, of food deserts. Um, but like, it took me a while. And this is also before I was quite as, um, quite as into cooking. I was, you know, in my early twenties. So it was a lot of, you know, eating, eating junk food or whatever, like, um, but to like each, apartment that we from the, from the first apartment that we lived in um where it took a couple of months to finally figure it out figure out where there was actually a decent grocery store in the neighborhood because there's like you know 10 15 bodegas uh in in every direction that all sell nothing fresh like you might get uh, a mediocre piece of fruit or something like that but a lot of them there's literally nothing resembling fresh food um, Why don't we have more localized farms like everywhere in the well, city? Well, because so you're talking about. I mean, it goes back to capitalism. You know, you're talking about efficiency and you know, uh, you know, generating profits and stuff like that. And this is another part that I was that that um, was what made me think about this. And, and maybe it's something that we need to like do research and try to um, you know do what we can to kind of draw. Uh, like draw attention to people who are doing this because there are urban farming programs. There are people who are trying to teach kids um, in urban areas uh, how to, how to farm. And there are um, right. places you were telling where me um, there was some, uh, there was the greening of Cuba was an example, I think that you used. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, a slightly different one, but that is about urban gardening. Um, but, uh, but yeah, because the more, we all like it's just i mean first of all it's a problem with failing to see ourselves as part of our environment right um like i i think i drove one of my english teachers in college up the fucking wall um because i took this nature writing class um and i constantly kept going back to this argument of like, well, what, you know, what do we mean when we say nature writing? Because there are plenty of things that, uh, you know, that we would 
uh, read in this in this story or in this in this class that was that were about people in you know what we would traditionally think of as nature, um, but like mankind is part of nature. So like, where does it like what 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 is the line? um where we go okay that's no longer nature like if you put uh, a rough hewn cabin in the woods is it still nature um and if the answer to that is yes then okay what if that cabin now has plumbing and electricity is it still nature and you know how big does it have to be how many trees versus how much square footage of cabin is you know where where do we draw the line between what is nature and what is not nature um I also, if I could add to that, we have a set, like, so this separateness, right? We're, we have this feeling that we're separate from our environment. That's actually true in the cities. Um, the way that we've actually built our civilization is such that it feels like it is separate from nature. I don't know why. But also our individual bodies, we have a sense that that we're just these mechanical bodies walking around, but we are filled with microbes and all kinds of other organisms that live within our bodies that actually allow our bodies to function. So we are nature, like in this actually like really major way, but it's almost like we don't want to admit it. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent, like, um, you know, there's so we we talked so much about uh, trauma and fear, um, because a lot of the like when I look at, um, you know, like hoarder level uh, capitalism, like you know, people who like billionaires, you know, people who have so much, not just more, not just much more, but like so so much more, so exponentially, infinitely more. Uh, resources at their disposal than they could ever possibly use. Even with like you take, you know, a lot of the people who don't think that it's immoral to be a billionaire um, are like, well, they're going to, you know, use that money for, for this, that, the other thing, like, even if they did do all that, and even if all that shit worked, it would still be a, a, like a, a level of hoarding of resources that should be like it, it should be in the fucking dsm like it should be categorized as a mental illness to to hoard that much resource when there are when there's any single person uh that has any less than they that they need to to survive um but but again i think it is this um the this horrifying cartoonish this caricature of what starts off as a thing that is very very you know basic at the core of all of us and it is the the need to survive and the the fear of of not having enough uh and so you know by that that fear just mutates and mutates and mutates and mutates and mutates uh to the point where you can mentally justify uh having you know, having more research than or more resources than you and every single person you care about could possibly use in a thousand lifetimes. <laughs> wow. You did it again. Did I make a point? Yeah. Good. I blacked out. <laughs> That's the only way you can make a point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I feel like that the not the not enough is like big. It's a big one and maybe we can end um just on on the on the question what what could it be like to live in a human society where we were enough as we are? And, and being human was good enough as it is. And we didn't have to try to be something that other than what we, we are. And that we absolutely have enough to go around without this feeling of scarcity that seems to penetrate. So... Wow, right? Right when I said, when I was saying that, there was somebody outside walking by just screaming. 
<laughs> um, I think that getting to that point, that getting getting to the point where we realize that there's enough, um, and choosing to choosing to take care of each other, yeah. because here's here's another thing that choosing capitalism to take care of each other. Capitalism has lied to us. Um, capitalism has, yeah. has lied to us and convinced us that um, not only is it good to be selfish because other, because everybody right. else is selfish because right. all of, all of us are bad. So therefore it's okay for you to be bad. Right. Um, you know, that guy would steal your sandwich. Therefore it is okay to steal his sandwich or to not share your sandwich with him. Right. Um, and the other thing that it is, that it is lied to us about is that it, it is necessary for, for human progress that, yes. um, that the, the need to compete, uh, the need to acquire wealth, yep. uh, and the need to, uh, buy gold toilets and lord your wealth over other people is what drives innovation and drives human advancement. Oh, this and, is good. and I will humbly submit that there will not be another like a, a a leapfrog level a massive a, a an advancement in humanity that takes us beyond this planet that allows us to understand more of the universe truly understand it from a perspective that stretches beyond this tiny little dot there will not be an advancement in humanity or in anything that we become um, until we are able to work together and to realize that we need to evolve beyond um, the, the, this, this petty idea that uh, fighting each other for scraps of meat is the, the best way for us to survive. So I'm going to end with a song. Okay. What's the song Thank called? I'll, so I'll, intro I'll, I'll introduce it. What's the song called? I don't know. It's called Oshun. Lava okay. Musolios. I, the, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm going to sing it right. It's, it's in Portuguese? Yeah. You will almost certainly not sing it right. And I learned it when I lived down there. I learned it in ceremony. Because you have to, uh, for Portuguese, it reads like Spanish, but you have to take all of the, um, the, ow, ow. all of the sounds and turn, yeah, to all of the vowel sounds and, and, ow. and, and pronounce them like your Owen Wilson. Um, and then you have to take all of the, uh, consonant sounds and just, uh, act like you have mashed potatoes in your mouth. So all the consonant sounds sound like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me try Ocean, lava, olhos, ocean, minha emoção. Ocean, lava, olhos, ocean, minha emoção. Ocean, flor das águas. Limpia meu coração, Oshun, flor das águas, limpia meu coração, Oshun, flor das águas. <laughs> we should stop it at the end of that song. Okay, that's the song. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like you're speaking por Portuguese with Spanish pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> Ocean lava, meus, meus yeah. olhos, meus cor olhos. Cor coração, uh, cor coração. 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 Yeah, that, that it, because it's it's not cata. It, it sound it almost sounds more like corazón. It's just that the spelling makes it seem like it should be further away, but instead of a like a n. Uh, with the tongue at the roof of the mouth, it's like a the you're throwing the vowel over the roof of the mouth to in an attempt to find the end. So it's like, oh. Can I try singing it one more time? Sure. And maybe you can use this version instead. Oh, I don't know. I might leave in everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
ocean, lava meus olhos, ocean, minha emoção, ocean, lava meus olhos, ocean, minha emoção, ocean, flor das águas, Limpia meu coração, ocean, flor das águas, limpia meu coração, limpia meu coração, ocean, flower of the water, clean my heart. That's a good prayer to end on. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. We're glad you were here. If you want to support what we're doing, you can do that at patreon.com slash H-I-M-M-B or at Heidi J L L C on Venmo. Thank you. We appreciate you. Donate now. <laughs>